Hey, good morning, and if the children, the preschoolers and kindergartens haven't gone to Children's Church yet, you guys can, and now you can go ahead and head on out, um, head to the back there, and you can meet Mr. Gillian and Miss Presley Ann, that'd be great. Well, hey, turn with me, if you would, to Jonah chapter 3 as we continue in this series, Jonah Navigating a God-Centered Life, and we're going to look at Jonah, and actually, I have the first three verses here in the bullet and mentioned, but I think I'm going to actually read through verse 5 today. So um, we're going to do Jonah 3, 1 through 5 this morning. Let me pray for us. Father, thank you for your word. It's living and active. And I pray that you would uh, open our hearts, open our eyes to the truth of your word, to the truth of your promises. Come Holy Spirit and apply your word to our hearts this morning. Write it on our hearts this morning that we might not sin against you, but we might love you more, Jesus. So open our hearts to you this morning, we pray, and we pray these things in your name, amen. Okay, Jonah 3, 1 through 5, hear now God's word. Then the word of the Lord came to Jonah the second time, saying, Arise and go to Nineveh, that great city, and call out against it the message that I tell you. So Jonah arose and went to Nineveh according to the word of the Lord. Now Nineveh was an exceedingly great city, three days' journey in breadth. Jonah began to go into the city, going a day's journey, and he called out, Yet forty days, and Nineveh shall be overthrown. And the people of Nineveh believed God. They called for a fast, and they put on sackcloth from the greatest of them to the least of them. Well, last week we looked at, we kind of backtracked a little bit, and we looked at uh, Jonah, and particularly God's interaction with the sailors, and how God was even using Jonah's disobedience and his fleeing from the Lord in the life of these completely pagan sailors, right? And these sailors, by all accounts, we know were converted and turned to the Lord, even using Jonah's disobedience. Well, in a greater scheme today, or even in a greater way, we're going to see that God used the disobedience of Jonah even to bring a whole nation to repentance. That's an amazing thing. So that's what we're going to look at this morning. And so we pick up this morning after Jonah has been puked up by a whale, if you will, on a beach, right? Right? And I would have loved to have been there, a fly on the wall, if you will, to see that whole thing. I mean, not to actually see a whale vomit, but to see Jonah. What were his first thoughts, right? What's going on in Jonah's mind after he's miraculously rescued by this very uh, amazing means, this, this whale or this fish? Well, we don't know much about the immediate moments of Jonah after he comes on the beach after he's been in this fish. But I'm sure for the 36 hours or so that he had been in the belly of that fish, it seemed like an eternity to him, right? And he probably was reliving the nightmare voyage that he had had with the sailors uh, just a few hours before. He was probably reliving how um, God had protected him and the sailors. He's probably reliving how his sin had been exposed uh, by the sailors and by the Lord and how his rebellion had even put these guys, these sailors and their lives in danger. Uh, And yet he's still remembering his experience with God God's dramatic power, if you remember just in a quick review, Jonah was an Israelite, he was a prophet, the the Lord had risen him up, he had had a very powerful ministry among his own people, Israel, right, and seen very successful ministry among his very own people as he preached, people responded to his sermons, and so Jonah felt like he was the stuff, right, he felt like he was a pretty good prophet, and so he was remembering even his good experiences uh, as being a prophet for the Lord and remembering how God had rescued him, right, how God had even used his grace uh, and his grace to, to uh, have a great ministry among his people. Um, and so I don't know, you know, I hope Jonah was a little bit wiser after he had been 
uh, spit up on this beach. And I hope he had been a changed man on that seashore that day. And so that's where we pick up this morning. The word of the Lord comes to Jonah a second time. If you've got a pen, underline that in your scriptures or circle it. The Lord had come to Jonah a second time. And I like that. I love that verse because the Lord didn't just visit Jonah once with the word, but he came back to Jonah a second time. Even after his major rebellion, right, God revisits Jonah, comes back to him a second time. And I think that's true of many of us in our Christian lives that maybe there's, you have been, you are engaged in some kind of ministry. You're engaged in some kind of ministry to people because the Lord, the word of the Lord, God has come back to you in a sense a second time. Now, what do I mean by that? Well, what was Jonah's reaction the first time the Lord came to him? What was it? Positive or negative? Pretty negative, wasn't it, right? The word of the Lord came to him the first time, and what did he do? He rebelled. He ran, right? He ran from the Lord. Uh, it wasn't positive. It was resistance, right? There was resistance in his heart. There was fear. There was reluctance. I even think there was just downright stubbornness in Jonah's life, right, as he heard the word of the Lord the first time. And so if you look at what I call pre-fish Jonah, okay, we have pre-fish Jonah and we have post-fish Jonah. Well, pre-fish Jonah, wow, there we go. I'm really powerful today. All right. Pre-fish Jonah, you know, selfish, fearful, stubborn, resisting the Lord. Post-fish Jonah, we see a more tender-hearted Jonah. We see a, a real transformation in Jonah. And I think many of us are like the pre-fish Jonah, if you will. We resist the Lord at times. Maybe the Lord is calling you to a deeper dependency on him. He's always calling you to a deeper dependency on him, and you're resisting that. Maybe there's a particular sin or struggle in your life that's really causing a lot of resistance between you and the Lord, a lot of um, dysfunction in your relationship with the Lord. Maybe it's the Lord is calling you to, to be more uh, intentionally involved in sharing the gospel, and you're resistant to that, and you resist the Lord in what he's calling you to do. Well, we do resist the Lord at times, and I think many of us are kind of like this pre-fish Jonah, if you will. Uh, many of you have been following the news about the whole Ebola outbreak, right? Uh, that's really happening mainly in Liberia, but even coming over into the shores of the United States. And I read a great article, article written by Nancy Ritbull. Nancy was one of the missionaries who, along with Dr. Hughes, Kent Hughes, had um, contracted Ebola, right? Came over into the United States, was treated at Emory Hospital in Atlanta and recovered, fully recovered. Well, she was interviewed by Desiring God Ministries, John Piper's ministry, and um, she, uh, I want to quote her because she talks about uh, not so much her experience with contracting Ebola and then the Lord healing her, but, she, you know, many people asked her, why would you risk your life? Why would you risk your husband's life, y'all's life as a couple, to go and do ministry among people who are so sick and it's such a dangerous uh, disease, a dangerous virus? Well, she's, she talks about this book that John Piper wrote called Risk is Right. And I've not read the book. I want to now after I read this article. But she quotes what Piper says in his book, Risk is Right. And listen to what she says. She said, there are a thousand ways to magnify Christ in his life and death. None of them should be scorned. All are important. But none makes the worth of Christ shine more brightly than sacrificial love for other people in the name of Jesus. If Christ is so valuable that the hope of his immediate and eternal fellowship after death frees us from the self-serving fear of dying and enables us to lay down our lives for the good of others, such love magnifies the glory of Christ like nothing else in the world. 
after the interview, the, the interviewer asked her, do you have plans on going back to Liberia and treating patients? She said, absolutely. I can't wait to get on a plane and go back. And so that's her plan. Her husband and her are planning to go back with Samaritans first and do ministry among those who have Ebola once she gets her strength back. So how does someone like Nancy joyously risk her life for the sake of caring for these folks? You know, in a sense, the word of the Lord came to Nancy a second time, if you will. And here's what I want us to see this morning. that The only reason that any of us know and serve the Lord is because today God... God is a God of persistent grace. And that's part of the story of Jonah, that God is a God of persistent grace who pursues Jonah day in and day out. And God is determined that his servants will serve him and his sovereign purposes, no matter what it costs them and no, really no matter what it costs God. Because God doesn't deal with us halfway. Does he deal with Jonah halfway here? There's no half measures with God in the way he deals with Jonah, right? Think about if you're reading the book of Jonah for the first time. Now, Jonah, if you're reading the book of Jonah for the first time, you're kind of like Jonah. Jonah's stuck in this story, right? And we are the readers outside of the book of Jonah. We know the whole story of Jonah because we've read it. But Jonah here, he's stuck in chapter 3, right? And so Jonah doesn't know the outcome of the story because he's here stuck in chapter 3. But we, the reader, do because we've read it. We're outside of his story, reading his whole story. And we know from the whole story that God sent this human instrument, Jonah, to effect a mighty revival and national repentance, right? And in turn, it's going to bring salvation to the folks of Nineveh. But we as the reader, as we read this story, we read Jonah's narrative, we see that there's this pattern that emerges in the book of Jonah. And Maybe we don't see it as clearly, but this is what the Lord is trying to get through to Jonah and what he's trying to get through to us. And here's this pattern. It's God's purpose here. And here's the pattern. That the salvation of one sinner, Jonah, this Israelite sinner, is intended to produce the salvation of many Ninevite sinners. That's the pattern here in the book of Jonah. You see it pretty clearly. The salvation of one man, this Israelite sinner, Jonah, will produce, is intended to produce the salvation of many Ninevite sinners, right? The word of the Lord came to Jonah a second time. He had a second chance. Why? Well, because God was planning all along. Now, get this. In his providence, God was planning all along to restore Jonah back to himself and then prepare him for ministry to bless the people of Nineveh with revival and salvation. This is amazing. This is the gospel of grace that God takes one broken sinner, Jonah, who is inherently rebellious, right? And But then he owns his rebellion and sin. He's repentant, right? And then God restores him. God repairs him. And then he uses that redeemed sinner to bring about huge ministry and transformation. That's an amazing illustration of what I like to call the school of grace. Jonah was in the school of grace. Maybe you're in the school of grace today. And so that's what I want to see this morning. Two things. Jonah in the school of grace. And then secondly, Jonah in the sending of grace. So the school of grace and the sending, S-E-N-D-I-N-G, sending of grace. So let's just look at Jonah in the school of grace, if you will. Maybe you remember the Apostle Paul who said this in 2 Timothy 3. Paul said this. He said, all scripture is breathed out by God and it's profitable for teaching. It's profitable for reproof and correction and training in righteousness. That the man of God may be complete and equipped for every good work, Paul says. 
So Paul is saying here, in essence, God's word, the word of God, Scripture has this function of what I, what I like to say, kidding out the believer, kitting out the believer. Okay, what do I mean when I say kidding out? I think it's an old Scottish term. You go on a camping expedition with your children or your son, right? Son, we're going to go, we're going to go camping. And what does the dad who doesn't have a lot of experience camping do? He goes and blows like $1,000 on camping equipment, right? Just for a weekend. We've got to get the tent and we've got to get the stove. But he kits himself out, right? He gets the tent and the sleeping bag. If you're going, a, you're going on an expedition, right, you've got to have your survival kit, your medical kit, right, your, your, uh, your climbing kit if you're going to climb Mount Everest. You kit yourself out. You prepare for that expedition or that journey. Paul says that Scripture kits us out. It's, it kits out the believer. Uh, God's Word kits us out and prepares us for what God has for us, God, what God's calling us to do. God's word in its own power and its own strength brings transformation to our hearts, transformation to our minds, right, so that it prepares us for service of the Lord, God's service. And so sometimes we, like Jonah, we're reluctant to be obedient to the Lord and his word. And yet God uses his word to grab our conscience, right, just like he did with Jonah. God grabbed Jonah's conscience, And then by grace, Jonah yields to him. By grace, we yield to him in service to him. That's the power of God's word. And God's word breaks us down, right? It it binds our conscience and brings us to a level of submissiveness and surrender that, like Jonah, who surrenders and submits to the Lord. You know, think about it like this. Initially, Jonah was resistant to God's word, right? When it came to him the first time, he was resistant. Yet even in his resistance, God was working in him through his word, shaping him and preparing him. You know, what if Jonah had listened to God the first time? What if chapter 1, verse 1, the word of the Lord came to Jonah, right? He says, go to Nineveh, preach to the Ninevites because I'm burdened for them. What if Jonah said, okay, Lord, I'll do that. And immediately he, instead of going to Joppa, he goes to Nineveh. What if he had done that? What would have happened, do you think? I'd argue that I don't think much would have happened. And the reason being is Jonah wasn't ready. He wasn't spiritually prepared. He was not in a right place spiritually to be much use to the Ninevites. In fact, Jonah needed more schooling, if you will. I think if you were to, you know, to read the book of Jonah, one of the taglines, just like you see in a book, it gives you the main title, and then it has a tagline, kind of about what the book's about. Maybe one tagline that you could pick for the book of Jonah is from scandalous to evangelist. I think that's what you could say about the book of Jonah. He has gone from scandalous to evangelist because Jonah needed to truly understand the lost condition of the Ninevites. And how is he going to understand the lost condition of the Ninevites until God exposed the lostness within himself, right? He would have had a hard time identifying with these folks. He would have had a hard time having compassion, compassion and sympathy for them because He was struggling so much himself. He needed to be broken and melted and filled with the love of God for the lost and be really aware of his sin and God's grace before God could really particularly use him with the Ninevites. And so here's the crazy thing in God's economy of grace. You know, God has a whole different economy and paradigm that he views us through or views the world through. God views us through this economy of grace. And get this, this is astounding. And you see this so clearly in Jonah. That God used the consequences of Jonah's disobedience to equip him for future ministry. 
God even used Jonah's sin to equip him for future ministry. That's astounding, right? We think consequences of sin. Oh, we've got to flush that stuff down the toilet. That's bad. You know, sin's bad, and we need to be forgiven, right? But God can't possibly use our past and our brokenness for future ministry. But he can. In fact, in his economy of grace, God does that. He did that with Jonah. He used even Jonah's consequences of his sin to equip him for future ministry. Now, of course, God in his providence and in his sovereignty was weaving these things into the tapestry of Jonah's life. And we can't make this assumption. Don't think this assumption. Oh, well, Stephen, that means that God must have excused Jonah's sin and disobedience, right? No, he didn't. You know, God didn't overlook or sweep Jonah's sin or his rebellion under the rug, did he? He, he disciplined Jonah, right? And you're foolish to think that God somehow deals lightly with our sins, right? God never treats our rebellion or our sin lightly, beloved. Never does God treat your sin lightly. But by his grace, if you turn to him in repentance and faith, you turn from being curved in on yourself and turn from being sinful and turning to Christ and his forgiveness and his grace, you turn back to him, you own your sin, you own your chastisements, you own the consequences of your sin, you humble yourself before the Lord and you turn back to him, God is able to still make his name great and be praised among the nations even, and even... He can do that on the shoulders of his children's failures. That's astounding. That is grace. And so it took this radical school of grace that Jonah had to go through for him to be ready to do ministry to Nineveh. God needed a broken and contrite Jonah, right? You see this principle in Romans. Paul says this in Romans 5.20. Paul says, Now the law came to increase the trespass, but where sin increased, Paul says, grace abounded all the more. So that as sin reigned in death, Paul says, grace also might reign through righteousness, leading to eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. Paul uses this term abounding grace or super abounding grace. Grace abounded all the more. Where sin abounded, grace abounded all the more. If you, if you look up that word in the Greek, it, it literally means super abounding. It means to make over rich, not just to be rich, in grace, but over-rich in grace. Superabundance, Paul says, to be abundantly filled so that you are overflowing. That's the picture Paul says here, that where sin increased, God's grace increased all the more and fills you if you are in Christ and you have turned to him. And you are like this vessel that is just pouring over his grace, pouring over his love because he has so filled you with his love and grace. See, friends, that's the source of evangelism. That's the power source of evangelism is his super abundant grace that you are so filled with the love of Christ. You are so filled so freely and fully by his super abounding and abundant grace that you are pouring out into the lives of others around you. And that God, because of his super abundant and abounding grace, can even take our experiences and our failures and we receive his super abundant grace and forgiveness and love. And then he takes our rebellion and even our sin and the consequences of our sin. And he makes that serviceable in his hands. And then he equips us for the future. That's unbelievable, folks. That's the gospel. You see, we, when we talk about evangelism in the church, think about this. When we have discussions about evangelism in the church, typically, we tend to focus on, okay, how does Wellspring 
going to mobilize Joe and Susie and, and Frank over here? How is the church going to equip and mobilize these three to send out and go do evangelism, right? To connect with unbelievers. And that's an okay understanding of evangelism. But I think in those terms, evangelism can be mistaken as a maneuver, if you will, rather than a proclamation. To evangelize means what? I am a Christian. I have been saved by grace through faith alone and Christ alone. And because of that good news, I as an evangelist, I as a herald, I'm going to go out and tell somebody about the good news of Jesus, right? That's what an evangelist, a messenger does. Jesus has come and preached the good news to me. Jesus has given his life and died for my sins and he has risen in my place. He has risen from the dead and overcome all of my brokenness. He's put to death my sin and he's brought me new life, right? As I have put my trust in him. And that's what I'm going to go tell somebody. That's what I'm going to tell these three to go and tell people, right? See, the good news is what makes a Christian a Christian, right? This is the news that we should be saying to one another all the time. Even the believer needs to hear evangelism. Even the believer needs to be evangelized. We need to hear the promises of God again and again and again, right? But sometimes we tend, and I think the church tends to reduce evangelism to maneuvers or tactics, right? This lady, Leslie Newbingen, said this in her book. Uh, what's the name of her book? She said, uh, The Gospel in a Pluralistic Society. Listen to what she says about this particular thing. She says, It's evangelism that requires affections. Evangelism requires your affections. We're going to have a hard time proclaiming someone who doesn't impress us, she says. But not if we're overcome with joy and captivated by glory. This means that foundational to evangelism isn't so much our strategy for outside contact, but our seeing and savoring Jesus Christ. Evangelism, our mission, is an extension of our joy, she says in God. And then she goes on to say this, mission begins with a kind of explosion of joy. The news that the rejected and crucified Jesus is alive is something that cannot be possibly suppressed. It must be told who can be silent about such a fact? At the heart of mission is thanksgiving and praise. When it is true to its nature, it is so to the end. Mission is acted out doxology, she says. I want you to hear that phrase. Mission is acted out doxology. Why do we sing the doxology? We end our service every week with praise God. Who, how does it go? Praise God whom all blessings flow. Praise him. You know, we sing that every week. Why do we sing the doxology? We end our worship service in celebration of God's goodness to us, that he has rescued us, right? We sing it with joy and gratitude that he has saved me, he has delivered me, he has rescued me. I deserve hell, I deserve nothing, and yet he has given me everything in Jesus Christ. So our mission, as we leave those doors, is acted out doxology. We are going outside of those doors, acting out of gratitude and joy, propelled by the gospel, to share, to evangelize. It's not uh, you know, principles or maneuvers. It's you being propelled out by the love of Christ and the gospel. Mission is acted out doxology. It's this explosion of joy. And that's what God had to do in Jonah's life. God didn't say, all right, Jonah, here's five principles. You know, take some notes. Here are five principles. Here's what you need to go. Do these five principles, and all of Nineveh will be saved. No. In fact, we just read Jonah's sermon. What was his sermon? It was simply, yet 40 days, and Nineveh shall be overthrown. That was Jonah's sermon. <laughs> wasn't a real long sermon. Maybe I should learn from that. <laughs> but he sends Jonah out. It was this 
uh, mission acted out of doxology. Jonah had tasted so deeply the grace of God, and he was sent out. He was propelled by God's superabounding grace. That's how God worked in Jonah's life. And so he was ready for that moment when the word of the Lord came to him a second time. You see, God wasn't just interested in Jonah's heart. But you see, Jonah was in the school of grace so that he would graduate and be sent. He would be sent the sending of grace. The Lord is at work in your life, friends, even disciplining you in his grace, not just because he wants your heart. He does. But he also wants the hearts of others around you. And you are in the school of grace to, be, to graduate and be sent, the sending of grace. And so secondly, that's what we see. This principle behind Jonah's restoration was God's sovereign grace, right? But there's another principle that lies behind this of what happens to Nineveh. The principle is this. God intends to bring life out of death. God intends and, in fact, delights to bring life out of death. Now, what do I mean by that? Let's call this the Jonah principle, okay? Because this is essentially what Jesus called it. If you remember this, Jesus actually used Jonah for a sermon illustration. Uh, if you look at Matthew and Luke, uh, Jesus is talking to the Pharisees, you know, just a cranky group of guys who just wanted to follow God's law and didn't believe Jesus was the Messiah or who he says he was. They were just cranky, right? And so Jesus is giving them a sermon. He's giving them this story, and he refers to Jonah. In Matthew and Luke, you can look at this. Matthew 12, 39 through 40, Jesus, they're, they're demanding that Jesus, the Pharisees are demanding that Jesus would give them this convincing sign that he was who he really says he was. He was the Messiah because they didn't trust Jesus. They didn't have any faith in him. And so here's how Jesus responds to them in Matthew 12. He says, an evil and adulterous generation seeks for a sign, looks for a sign, but no sign will be given to you <laughs> except the sign of the prophet Jonah. And so he refers to Jonah. Now, what did Jesus mean by this cryptic phase, phrase, except for the sign of the prophet Jonah? Jesus went on to explain that just as Jonah was in the belly of the fish for three days and nights, so the sign would be him, so the son of man, Jesus, would be in the heart of the earth. He's like, guys, you want a sign? I'm the sign, okay? I am the sign. Jesus is saying, this is the only sign that you need, that out of my death, men are going to receive life. Out of my death, men will receive life. Out of my weakness will be the sufficiency of my saving power, and it will be known. And he, Jesus says this again in John uh, chapter 12. Maybe you remember this when Jesus uh, was saying to his disciples, he said, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless a grain of wheat falls into the ground and dies, it is barren, no fruit. Uh, this past summer I planted a garden and I planted corn, and it's just, it's amazing. It still blows my mind that you can take a little corn seed that's just dry as paper and put that in the ground, and two weeks later you got a corn plant. I mean, it, that's all you do. Poke your finger in the ground, plop it in, cover it, and you walk away. That's how hard it is to plant. And then two weeks later, a corn plant. Jesus is saying, unless that grain of wheat, unless that grain of corn falls into the ground and dies, it's barren, no fruit. But if it dies, that little corn seed, that little uh, kernel of wheat, if it's broken apart and it's no longer a seed, it's lost its original form, it dies, it bears much fruit. One little grain of corn, teeny, size of my pinky nail, produces this seven, eight foot tall corn plant that gets ears of corn that you can eat. It's astounding. It's a miracle. And Jesus says, unless that grain of wheat or corn dies, 
it will not bear much fruit. It's this whole mission is acted out of doxology. I have died. My old self has died and I have new life in Christ. And I'm no longer my own, but I've been bought with a price. And now the life I live, I don't live for myself, but I live for Christ and I live in faith in Christ. He is my new life. That's this principle, this death-producing life principle. And the fruit of evangelism is the result of this death-producing life principle. It's, be, it's when we become, even in spiritually speaking, and even sometimes physically speaking, we come to share spiritually in the death of Christ that his power is demonstrated in our weakness and others are drawn to him. Remember David. Uh, uh, David in the Old Testament wrote many of the Psalms. What did David, he was the king of Israel, beloved king of Israel, man after God's own heart, right? What did he say in Psalm 51? David loses his position. He reaps huge consequences because of his sin of adultery with Bathsheba. Uh, He kills off Bathsheba's husband, Uriah. And because of that, the consequences, David loses his status and his, you know, really his, uh, his, ah, what's the word I'm looking for? His umph as a king, right? He, he loses the right to, to build the temple. He, he even loses his very own blood, his son, because of the consequences of his sin. But yet, look what he says in Psalm 51. David says, purge me with hyssop, Lord, and I'll be clean. Wash me and I shall be whiter than snow. Let me hear with joy and gladness. Let the bones that you have broken and disciplined me rejoice. Restore to me the joy of your salvation and uphold me with a willing spirit. Then... I will teach transgressors your ways and sinners will return to you. There's that death-producing life principle. Paul talks about this in 2 Corinthians. You remember this in 2 Corinthians 4 when Paul says, we are afflicted in every way but not crushed. We are perplexed but not driven to despair. We are persecuted but not forsaken. We are struck down but not destroyed. Get what he says. Always carrying in us, in our bodies, the death of Jesus so that the life of Jesus may be also manifested or made known in our bodies. For we who live are always being given over to death for Jesus' sake, so that the life of Jesus may be manifested in your mortal flesh. Death is at work in me, but life is at work in you, Paul says. Christ's death is at work in me so that life can be at work in you. Paul later goes on and says that, Like a mother experiencing labor pains, he is willing to suffer for Christ so that Christ might be fully formed in his converts. David says in Psalm 126 that it is those who go out weeping with their precious seed who will return with rejoicing. Here's this principle that you have to be emptied of yourself so that you can be filled with Christ. You have to be emptied of yourself so that you can be filled with Christ. And then Christ is ably and fit to use you to affect the salvation of even the nations. It's that death-producing life principle. There's an old hymn that said this. It says, there is no gain but by loss. You cannot save but by a cross. The kernel of wheat to multiply must fall into the ground and die. Wherever you ripe fields behold, waving to God their sheaves of gold, Be sure that some kernel of wheat has died. Some soul has been there crucified. Someone has wrestled, wept, and prayed, and fought hell's glorious legions undismayed. What were God's sovereign purposes here in Jonah? It wasn't just to grab Jonah in his heart, but it was to use 
pre-fish and post-fish Jonah to bring revival to Nineveh, right? And we see that Jonah was the instrument of that revival. Jonah wasn't perfect, was he? And as a matter of fact, and we're going to see in the next two weeks as we wrap this series up, that Jonah continues to rebel. I mean, it's not like Jonah has this great attitude. He, he goes and preaches to Nineveh. The nation returns or turns to the Lord. And then we see in Jonah 4 that Jonah has a big old pity party and temper tantrum, right? But even in Jonah's continued struggle with his flesh and his sin, God uses him. He wasn't perfect. But we've seen something happen to Jonah, something in him that has been killed, if you will, by the grace of God. And it was out of this inner death in Jonah that life was born in Nineveh. So friends, let me ask you this. What about you? Each of you here today are not here by accident. The Lord's brought you here in his sovereign hand. What about you? What about each of you? Shouldn't we be prepared to die like Jonah in a sense? so that we can bring life to others through Christ. My prayer for all of us is that, Lord, would you help us die? Help us die to ourselves. Help us surrender to Christ and his grace, his superabundant grace, so that we might bear much fruit and so prove to be the disciples of Jesus. Let me pray for us. Father, thank you. Thank you for your word. And Lord, we, we uh, even thank you for your infinite wisdom. And somehow, Lord, you see fit to produce life um, through death. And you had to do that ultimately for us on the cross. That we could have never had life, real life, true life, apart from the death and resurrection of Jesus. And Lord, um, you, in your grace and in your infinite power and sovereign wisdom, can even use our failures, our past failures, even our present failures, if, if we would turn to you and repent that we would seek your forgiveness and seek your favor and restoration. And Lord, we would receive your grace and forgiveness and mercy. But Lord, we would embrace um, even, even the consequences of, of the sin that, that's been in our life. Um, we wouldn't try to backpedal. We wouldn't try to make excuses, but we would just own it. And then we would run to you and find forgiveness. You might be able to Lord, help us. Lord, love us. Help us to rest in your love and grace today. And we pray these things in your name's name. Amen.